Welcome to Feel to Fan, a podcast from Delta Tray where we discuss the intersection of media and technology in sport and entertainment. I'm Jason Bradwell. And welcome to our brand new podcast. I'm very excited to be hosting what I hope will be the first of many episodes that seek to uncover the strategies and technologies behind some of the largest media operators in sport, TV, and film. I'm Jason. I'm a product marketing director here at Delta Tray, the global leader in fan first video experiences. Every month, we're going to sit down with the movers and the shakers from the video technology industry, and we're going to try and answer the questions that keep us all awake at night. How do we keep our fans engaged? What does it take to scale a service to meet the demands of millions of concurrent viewers? Why is it so important to invest in data? In today's episode, we're going to be talking about embracing the new normal. Since the beginning of this year, video technology operators have had to reevaluate their strategies and reallocate their budgets in order to meet the demands of a world where there is a lot less live sports content. Joining me will be Group Chief Evangelist of Delta Trey, Carla DeMarcus, and Mihir Walavalka, CEO of LiveLike, to discuss the best case studies that we've seen, and also what lessons can be learned from today that can be taken to tomorrow. A little later on, we'll be joined by Asha Gopal, Senior Product Manager for M-Tribes, the latest product to be launched by Delta Trey. We're going to discuss why it's never been more important to understand your audience, and how you can take data beyond the dashboard and transform it into actionable insights. All of this and more on From Field to Fan. Here we go. Kicking us off, we've got Mihir Walavalka, CEO of LiveLike, a company that leverages social media, augmented reality, and virtual reality to elevate live viewing experiences to fans all over the world. We also have Carlo DeMarcus, Group Chief Evangelist of Delta Trey, who is a regular speaker on the industry circuit and seemingly carries a crystal ball in his bag to guide him on what the future of television will be. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. How are you doing? Hi, Jason. Happy to participate. Thanks very much for joining us, gentlemen. Obviously, we're facing an unprecedented time in sports. Uh, Live content, live programming as we know it has been on a temporary hiatus for a few months now. What's your take on how the industry has adapted to this uh, situation? In general, I have to say that I've been impressed by the reaction of our industry. I've seen a lot of acceleration, a lot of good spirit, people getting together to solve problems. The way content production has quickly evolved, the way the relationship and engagement with fans has taken center stage, the authenticity, the humanity that has been expressed by the industry in such a difficult period really impressed me positively. Great. Mihir, what are your thoughts on how the, uh, how the industry has adapted to uh, the current situation with, with coronavirus? I actually couldn't agree more with Carlo. Every organization, whether it's on a broadcaster side, in the, in the ecosystem, whether it's on the broadcaster side or the federation and league side, or even the fan, for example, has, uh, has adapted to the times. You know, everyone's, everyone's stuck at home. Everyone is trying to figure out what to do next. Even leagues and broadcasters that are traditionally, uh, you know, whose fan bases and demographic primarily have been on the older side, uh, have started adopting esports, have started up adopting gaming. Fox has um, broadcasted um, uh, iNASCAR uh, races, virtual races online on, on the uh, broadcast feed, which would have never would have been possible or even imaginable um, even a couple of months ago. Um, and the response from the audience has been good. I mean, they have been rewarding these broadcasters and leagues that have been uh, taking the initiative. And even from our own perspective, we have seen so many partners or potential partners 
teams, leagues, federations reach out to see if we could work with them on doing something innovative, uh, especially as we gear up for a time where st stadiums might be empty when games are being played. Uh, and everyone's trying to figure out what can we do to make this situation better for everyone. Um, and from the other side, from a collaboration standpoint or from where people are coming together standpoint, you can see where broadcasters and leagues are trying to figure out together how to solve the media rights puzzle in this situation. It's not, you know, it's not us versus them. It's, okay, we are all in this together. How can we find a way to um, maybe reduce the broadcast fees or find a way to play games in a way where broadcast fees or the, the loss is shared uh, between partners? And I think that's probably what's going to be required the most in this times for people to uh, for this for the industry to survive this time phase, time time period. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, and and obviously seeing the industry come together to, you know, deal with this deal with this crisis as one has been incredibly encouraging to see. I think it's interesting, Mahir, that you mention you know these new forms of content that uh, media operators, sport operators in our space. Are, are looking to create to continue to keep fans engaged. Um, you mentioned esports, for example. What do you think Mahir is going to carry over when live sports returns? You know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, actually, I've been talking to a few of my friends in the space as well. Obviously, esports has been growing for quite a while now, and the hardcore fan bases um, have been devout esports fans for a while now. I think one thing that's probably, I think this time has probably exposed people that normally would not have been watching esports a little bit more. Uh, I do see um, broadcasters perhaps having slightly more esports programming going forward, <clears throat> even when live sports does come back. Uh, I mean, some iNASCAR races and some uh, NBA 2K games are actually really fun to watch. Uh, even I was surprised. I'm not a huge esports person myself. I've not really been a gamer my whole life. And so, you know, for me, it was kind of fun to see the Formula One races. Uh, the, the quality of the, the graphics is amazing. I mean, I saw the Formula One, the virtual Grand Prix that have been happening. And obviously, you see the younger drivers more uh, having more fun there. You know, Charles Leclerc or Lando Norris. You don't see the Hamiltons and the Vettels in there as much. But it's kind of fun to see. And there's a crossover between different, uh, different spaces. So, you know, the idea of bringing sports cricketers and Formula One racers to compete against each other. Creativity will probably carry over. I have no idea how programming might work. Obviously, slots are already uh, accounted for with sponsors and broadcasters. But, you know, especially with the rise of Twitch, the other thing I think definitely will continue over is, is Twitch has grown exponentially even in this time. And, and um, those behaviors that are being cultivated as you watch content on, on networks like Twitch but it's much more interactive and much more engaging. I think those traits will probably carry over. So Carlo, in your role as Group Chief Evangelist, you have written extensively about this period. And I was reading one of your posts the other day and you identified three phases, the sport hiatus, uh, resume, and the next normal. Tell me a little bit about this, this third phase, the next normal. What do you think is going to change? Yeah, um, if you want to, even the, the previous question, no, I'm, I'm a lot thinking about, okay, clearly things have changed in this, uh, in this period and people have started co producing content, engaging fans in different creative ways. I, I think we have seen not only the acceleration of behavior that we've already pushing uh, to our clients, to, to the market um, in the past, but adopted in like two weeks when maybe we saw resistance for two years. Even something like the NFL draft, which was I think a cornerstone in the way you can remote and distribute something. And uh, an event that is not really a sport event per se, it's not a live sport event, 
But still, the fact that in four weeks, the NFL was able to produce something like that. Very often, constraints make wall tumble and people are, if, if you want, the creative people have a win that they wouldn't be able to have before. So in that sense, understanding what can stay, it's something that we may need some time to, to understand properly. I see, obviously, eSport uh, being one of them, and I'm talking in this case, just to be specific, because of the industry we are, we are in, at the moment, I'm focusing more on the eSport that have a sport. So Formula One, NBA, FIFA 20, etc. Because I think, considering the, the big eSport population is even a different discussion in that sense. Not only eSport, but also the thing that I call compete from home, like cycling. And so those sports where the athlete is really competing. And, and you can say that Formula One maybe is almost similar. Um, all these kinds of things, especially thinking that you can put athletes in different parts of the world competing together in a, in a credible way. I see FIFA 2020 being a bit more different in that sense. This is content that captivates audience and can stay, I guess. The other thing that I think will stay is this more social way of consuming sport, even when you're not together. I, it's a long time. It's like two, three years that I'm observing companies like LiveLike, Kizwe, like uh, Reactu, like Cynic, like Maestro, maybe in some other way, Grabio. All companies that are trying to make the experience more interactive and they're bypassing traditional broadcast production ways of approaching things and creating a different model. That's something that will stay because I believed in it even before. And obviously, again, maybe we needed this crisis to make it more adopted by, if you want, the media, sports, and also the fans. And the third thing that I think can stay, but I agree with me here, then you need to see what space will be left when a lot of sports will be live again. If we assume 2020, the end of 2020 will make uh, the problem disappear somehow, 2021 will have a lot of live sports. Otherwise, I see the, if you want, uh, highly produced storytelling of sports, like The Last Dance, just to do an example that everybody understands stay. If you own a sport, saying, you know, the FIFA, the NFL, you should own the entertainment aspect of it. You should own the storytelling in the format of original series, etc. Why not you? Obviously, you're not a production house in that sense, but I mean, that content really belongs to the sport in terms of when I want to consume it, right? Uh, and why should I find it maybe in some places or other places where I don't even have access as a fan? So the fact that great storytelling in sport belongs to sport is something that we stay I, I think so carlo you you mentioned a word there that i'd like to pick up on you mentioned the word community and uh obviously what we've seen over the last few months is a is an acceleration in the creation and the development of virtual communities you know we're all using zoom a lot more um i think twitter reported that in the last quarter they've seen a 24 percent increase in their daily active users how are operators going to capitalize on this uh, renewed sense of community around, around sports, um, particularly in a digital world? Mahir, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a topic that has been near and dear to my heart for better part of the last decade. And, uh, you know, it's something that we have been striving to get into the world of sports. You know, as someone who grew, grew up um, watching sports, watching global sports in, while growing up in India, um, 
you know, the aspect of wanting to feel like you're there with a friend um, rather than watching alone at home because that's when Champions League played at middle of the night uh, or, or the NBA games, which were at 5 a.m. Uh, it's something that we've been working on for a while now. First, we started using virtual reality and now obviously we are trying to create community engagement platforms within partner apps. And as you can see from Twitter's engagement, Twitch's engagement, uh, even before the COVID crisis, uh, people wanted to have that uh, community feeling. But now, especially in the era of social distancing, where you're striving to have some sense of community and contact, um, I think broadcasters, even from our experience right now, broadcasters are starting to adopt it quite a bit. I mean, it's been heartening to see how many people have reached out uh, to see how we can work together on creating. Uh, and you saw this even in the watch parties that were created during the NFL draft, right? I mean, each team had sort of a watch party of their own. Uh, Facebook, all of these things were happening on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I believe after this crisis, uh, well, hopefully the crisis ends soon, um, and sports is back soon, but even you know the, the social distancing and fanless stadiums is probably going to persist for for a few months, if not a year or so. And so, in that case, um, I think this is an opportunity for every broadcaster uh, to provide those virtual communities and create that community engagement and social viewing experiences within their owned and operated apps, uh, rather than having everything just go on to Twitter or Twitch. Because just like Carlo mentioned, if you're a sports federation and owner of a sport quote unquote um, and content for that sport should reside with you similarly any chatter around that particular sport or especially if, if it's some rights that you have paid for then you should be taking advantage of that rather than having it all be on facebook twitter whatsapp etc so what we're seeing obviously is many operators in the space uh, looking at their technology infrastructure during this temporary hiatus of live content and preparing themselves for the future. Delta Train and LiveLike have obviously been close partners for, for many years. Uh, Mihir, what are we saying to customers today in terms of the strategic investments they should be making into their technology stack uh, for a period when live sports returns? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Delta Train and LiveLike have, uh, we announced our partnership um, in Q3, Q4 last year. Uh, we've already gone to market uh, together for, uh, for a few projects now. What LiveLike brings to the table is that community element, uh, you know, interactivity, community, and engagement element. And what Delta Trade brings to the table is a stable OTT platform uh, across multiple devices. The combination of our services um, means that, you know, you don't have to worry about the technical feasibility. The integration work is already done. What you need to worry about is the creativity about how you would engage your audience. I mean. Let's assume, let's take a hypothetical example of a partner that wants to launch a, um, a free-to-play game or, uh, or a gamification, as, bring some aspects from, of gamification and leaderboards into their experience. How are you, what kind of questions are you asking people? Uh, how are you engaging your community? Uh, is it going to be done in a manual, um, you know, a, a fun, fun person engaging the community with fun questions and uh, contextual questions based on what's happening at hand, or is it going to be done in an automated manner using data integrations? All of these things are possible. And the combination of Delta Tree and Live-like services make it possible. The success or not will be def defined by how you structure that engagement. So guys, yesterday I took part in a Twitter chat that was discussing uh, the use of TikTok by brands. 
And one of the questions that was asked was, which brands are actually doing TikTok well? And there were a lot of responses, but they only said two names. Uh, it was the Washington Post, the news publication, and Chipotle, the Mexican fast food restaurant. Do you think that during this period of a temporary live sport hiatus, uh, sports brands, teams, federations, if they're not doing so already, should be exploring TikTok as a new social media channel? But you know that I've wrote very early uh, about TikTok and how I saw TikTok being a positive for sports. And at the time I was thinking a lot about, if you want, uh, the, the Olympic movement. And, and even now you see that basically it's a platform that if you interpret it in a certain way, the good thing about TikTok is that people are normally have to do something physical to be relevant on TikTok, right? And that's very different from, uh, if you want for shoot Twitter, uh, maybe Instagram is a, a mix, but and and for sport teams and sport properties, it, it's a great opportunity. You definitely need to understand the language, or you just use it just as a you know another place where you put your videos. I have not been super impressed for the moment, uh, if not in that sense. Great content, but it's still the same content. I'm, I've seen some creativity more by I don't know people like Will Smith. I understand Will Smith may have some production capability, but again, even you know, sport properties can be creative on that. Um, I am still waiting for the, the next big thing in terms of sport brands, sport properties to astonish me on TikTok for the moment. Do you have any thoughts yeah, on this I mean, one, Mahir? Yeah, no, look, I mean, I, uh, it's hard to escape TikTok right now because even if you're not on TikTok as a user, you see people sharing TikTok videos on Facebook and, and Instagram. I think in general, given the demographic advantage that TikTok has, it's hard to think of sports brands not playing a role on TikTok. And you've started seeing some sports brands already take advantage of it and you know making big noise about the fact that they're uh, one of the first brands to be on TikTok and reach a million followers or whatever. Um, and you see brands like Overtime, you know, companies that have already captured the Gen Z's, uh, Gen Z's fancy, so to speak, uh, taking advantage of, uh, of the demographic advantage that TikTok brings to the table, you would have to think that sports brands are going to, even if they don't, like, I don't even know whether they, it's not a matter of whether they will or not. I think they're all starting to. Who does a better job, as Carlo mentioned, you know, he's, there needs to be creativity because it can't just be the same content on Facebook, same content on Instagram and same content on TikTok. I think it has to be slightly different formats. And that adds to the costs and concerns from a broadcaster or brand's perspective, correct? Like, you know, if you have to now start creating bespoke content for each different platform, that increases costs. And, you know, people are still trying to figure out how to get their way around the ROI issue. So it might take a while, but I can't imagine it not happening soon. Mihir Walavalka, CEO of LiveLike, and Carlo DeMarcus, Group Chief Evangelist at Delta Tray. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Delta Tray, as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jason. Understanding your audience has never been more important. Organizations across both sport and entertainment are pouring investment in by the bucket loads into technologies that allow them to gain a clearer picture on exactly how their customer base interacts with their service and their brand. They're interested in understanding what types of content they watch and for how long, and most importantly, what's driving them to jump ship to head to a competitor. 
But what's the point in having a bunch of data trapped in dashboards if you're unable to make use of it practically in your day-to-day -day operations? How do you empower your non-technical product owners on your front line to gather insights, to run tests, to personalize at scale, all without touching a line of code? That's the problem M-Tribe seeks to solve. Joining me is Asher Gopal, Senior Product Manager based out of Delta Tray's Sydney office, who has helped to spearhead the development and launch of Delta Tray's latest SaaS-based product. Welcome, Asher. Thanks for having me, Jason. Asher, tell me a little bit about what you do for Delta Tray. So as you mentioned, uh, I'm Senior Product Manager working on M-Tribes, which is our newest SaaS platform that we just launched. Um, my role is, is quite a... It's quite a versatile role, I'd say. Uh, it touches all aspects of product development, and that's um, you know being a part of the conceptualization conversations um, on behalf of the business, but with UX design, so our user experience design team, working with development on uh, their architecture thoughts and um, how we're going to build the product out, all the way through to testing. Um, and of course, the go-to-market activities, so marketing, uh, the commercial aspect of the product, uh, of course, the clients and their feedback and how this product fits in, I guess, their ecosystem, uh, but also the operational aspects of the platform, ensuring that we're continually developing uh, and the platform is running smoothly, I guess, going forward. That's great. So excitingly, Delta Tray has launched a new product recently. Tell me a little bit about M-Tribes. What is it? Who's it for? Why does it exist? Yeah, so M-Tribes is a SaaS platform for sports and entertainment companies who want to provide a really personalized experience for their viewers across their digital ecosystem. So there are four key pillars to M-Tribes. There's the inbuilt segmentation component, which allows for grouping of users into what we call tribes. And this is done through you know a range of different segmentation rules related to behavior or attributes um, or even custom properties that are passed through the SDK that may be campaign specific or show specific it's really up to the customer the second pillar is a UX configuration capability which allows the customer to change how different components within their application looks uh, the third pillar is the targeting pillar which um, allows the customer to target these experiences or components they've just configured to the tribes they have set up or the segments they have set up. And the fourth pillar is the analytics or insights side, which really allows you to see how these different UX targeting, I guess, um, strategies have performed and allows you to make informed decisions about your next move. So M-Tribe sits at the intersection of analytics, feature testing, scheduling, personalization. Can you kind of give me an example of exactly what a potential campaign could look like in M-Tribe? So if you've got uh, a rights holder um, who has a bunch of archive content and they want to use M-Tribe to go engagement around, around it, what would that look like? Sure, that's actually a really great example because we have customers that often, um, you know, are looking to keep their viewers and their users engaged, especially during an off-season period. Um, and this means, you know, they're not selling game passes or game-specific um, subscribers, selling to them, rather. Uh, so they want to keep them engaged, and archive content is a great way of doing that. Now, how you surface this archive content is really important. It's about surfacing the relevant content 
to the relevant audience using the tribes that you've set up in and tribes. Um, what this can help with also is the ability to understand your audience in an off-season period as well. So if they're clicking on short form content related to a specific team or a player, this can help you create more targeted campaigns during your season um, when you've got games running. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite good to keep that loop of insight and also personalization going and that relationship going with your viewers. So obviously data and understanding uh, an audience is a hot topic for many video operators around the world. I read a study the other day from Capgemini that said that 56% of enterprise businesses will increase their investment in big data over the next three years. Why do you think that we're seeing so much interest in this space, particularly around sports and entertainment? Well, there's been a big shift in the way companies have really focused their strategies around their platforms and how they want to engage their viewers. Um, There was, you know, I think initially back in the day, it was about providing uh, content anytime, anywhere. And that was at the advent of digital platforms. And then we moved to content recommendations, uh, which were, you know, really tailoring the content that was being consumed to the viewer. But now it's really about making the technology feel like a family member or a friend and really personalizing that experience. It's, we're trying to move away from the machine in us, rather we're trying to make it a really seamless part of our everyday experience. If we look at sport and entertainment, this does form a big part of most people's days like nowadays. Um, and they want, whether it's the, that commute home from work or whether it's the commute in in the morning or just as they put the kids to bed and they're trying to sneak in that episode or that game, they just want to make that experience as seamless as possible and almost have their technology and their apps and platforms know where they've been up to in their viewing experience. So I think there's, and the only way to do that really is data. It's about knowing your audience and knowing your, your viewers and their behaviors. So there is a big push towards that, definitely. I was talking to someone about this the other day, um, this idea around you know, human versus machine when it comes to uh, controlling the user experience of video applications um, or digital applications. Obviously, you've got companies like Netflix, which have you know, built their brand around their ability to understand uh, their audience in data and uh, make recommendations based on that. And then you have, on the other side of the spectrum, you also have services like Mubi, which is the kind of independent um, cinema uh, streaming service, which is entirely curated. Um, and that's their USP that they've got film aficionados who uh, know a lot about independent cinema and are making recommendations based on what they think their audience will like. Where do you think the market's going? Or do you think it is on the editorial side? Do you think it's on the machine learning data-driven side or is it a hybrid um, of both when it comes to curation of the user experience? I definitely think it's a hybrid. It's definitely a hybrid. Um, when we look at why companies want to, at least from you know a user experience side and really um, optimizing the look and feel of their applications to their user. The reason they're doing that is because they want to be able to surface that content better. They want to make the content more relevant to uh, their users. So it's really a supporting act to editorial for editorial. Um, the mission is the same. The goal is the same. So I think they do play hand in hand from a, you know, a user perspective. You can imagine a beautiful, seamless application, but if the content's not particularly relevant, you're not going to be spending your money and you're not going to be there. And likewise, if um, 
you know, you're there for one TV show and the experience is pretty average and you don't feel like your application really feels relevant, uh, then you'll go find that piece of content elsewhere. So it is really a beautiful mix of both. Finally, if you had one sentence to try and convince a video operator to get a demo of M-Tribes, what would you say? Do you think you've really nailed knowing your audience and ensuring they receive the best possible experience? But do you also know how this is all performing in your apps today? We can help you do that. Come check out M-Tribes. If you want to learn more about M-Tribes, the SaaS platform for real-time data-driven UX targeting, you can visit www.mtribes.com. We'll also include a link to the website in the description of this episode. Asha Gokwal, Senior Product Manager of M-Tribes at Delta Tray. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's it for the first episode of From Field to Fan. Thank you so much for listening with us today. And a huge thank you to our guests, Mihir Walavalka, Carlo DeMarcus, and Asha Gopal. If you've enjoyed listening, be sure to subscribe, rate, leave a comment on your podcast platform of choice, and also recommend to your colleagues. It all really helps. If you want to learn more about Delta Tray, you can visit our website, www.deltatray.com, or you can talk to us on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. All credits for the soundtrack go to Rex Banner, and this episode was produced by Marco Lorenzi. See you next time, and as always, stay safe.